so righteous, none so true, none so faithful. And we give him the praise this morning. Well, welcome. We're so glad that you're here worshiping with us this morning. Would you take a quick moment and turn and greet someone around you before you're seated? Well, good morning again, Hope Vale. How's everybody doing this morning? Oh, that was terrible. All right, we're going to try that again. How's everybody doing this morning? Oh, my goodness. That is excellent. It is so good to be here this morning. My name is Adam Harbaugh. I'm the outreach pastor here at Hopevale. And as we've said and expressed, we're just glad that you have come uh, to be here in this place this morning, just giving us an opportunity to gather together and praise and worship our Lord, hear from His Word, and just lay ourselves before Him and, and uh, just be willing to hear what He wants to communicate to us. And so this morning, whether you need encouragement or prayer uh, just whatever it is that you're bringing in here from your week, we just trust that God is going to meet you right where you're at and have something for you here this morning. So as we prepare uh, just to continue in worship, we're going to move into our time of offering. And I just want to say, if, if you're relatively new to Hopevale, we don't want this time to uh, feel like uh, putting you on the spot or as though you're obligated to give or anything like that. You know, just consider this service our gift to you. And this is really something that... Uh, you, you know, those of us who have been at Hopevale for a while, just out of an act of worship, choose to participate in. So uh, you're welcome to participate, but don't feel obligated at the same time. So I want to invite the ushers to come forward as we prepare to give, and let's go to the Lord in prayer. Lord, we just thank you so much for who you are and the opportunity that we as your people have to gather in this space and to just praise and worship your name. God, you are worthy of it. And we just, uh, we just bring ourselves to this time, and God, just look to you. And I just pray that you would help uh, us expand our hearts and minds for who you are and what you are doing in our own lives and the world around us as well. God, we know and we trust that you are at work, and we are just incredibly grateful for that and the opportunity that we then have to partner with you in your work here on this earth. And God, that really is a part of, of why we give. Uh, we give uh, out of uh, just the responsibility that you have given us with these resources. We give it back to you, God, and just trusting and knowing that you can take and use these resources to further your kingdom here on this earth. And so as we give, we just pray that we would do that joyfully and that we would just give with a sense that you are going to do great things in your name through it. We love you, Lord, and we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. What fortune lies beyond the stars There's dazzling heights too fast to climb I got so high to fall so far But I found heaven as love swept
Gospel of Matthew, the fifth chapter, 
God blesses those who are poor and realize their need for him, for the kingdom of heaven is theirs. God blesses those who mourn, for they will be comforted. God blesses those who are humble, for they will inherit the earth. God blesses those who hunger and thirst for justice, for they will be satisfied. God blesses those who are merciful, for they will be shown mercy. He blesses those who are pure in heart, for they will see God. God blesses those who work for peace, for they will be called children of God. God blesses those who are persecuted for doing right, for the kingdom of heaven is theirs. And God blesses you when people mock you and persecute you and lie about you and say all sorts of evil things against you because you are my followers. For you are the light of the world, like a city on a hilltop that cannot be hidden. No one lights a lamp and then puts it under a basket. Instead, a lamp is placed on its stand where it gives light to everyone in the house. In the same way, let your good deeds shine out for all to see, that everyone will praise your heavenly Father, respectfully in Jesus' name. So who knew? Who knew that when we got together last summer to begin to plan a series on the Beatitudes for this year, that those same Beatitudes would be read at the presidential inauguration just a week ago Friday. Who knew? And yet that's exactly what happened, as you saw there, when the Reverend Samuel Rodriguez, a pastor and president of the National Hispanic Christian Leadership Conference, took his turn on the platform during the swearing-in ceremony for our new president. Now, I bring that up not to make some kind of partisan political statement. Believe me, plenty of people have weighed in about that, both positively and negatively. Now, I wanted us to see this reading of the Beatitudes both as an encouragement and a warning. An encouragement and a warning. Plus, I, I should also throw this in too. Since I'm such a nice guy, I thought I'd give you a break from standing up and having you read it for yourself this week, okay? Consider yourself blessed. So, um, first of all, you know, watching this clip, it, it's an encouragement because it shows us the timeless and enduring quality of Jesus' teachings from over two th from 2,000 years ago. Teaching that was originally spoken to just a handful of people halfway around the world in a completely different language. Think about it, from peasants back then to presidents today. And it's amazing to think how these beatitudes of Jesus are just as relevant, just as profound in their wisdom to us who live in this modern and much more sophisticated world of ours as they were to those who first heard them in much simpler times. And so as a church who seeks to know and follow Jesus, to follow his gospel, his life, his example, his words, be encouraged by that. But as I think about the Beatitudes being shared at such a prestigious ceremony, like a presidential inauguration, there's also a warning in there for us as well, a warning. And that warning is one of superstition. While the Beatitudes are indeed incredibly powerful, they're transformational, they're not magical words we speak in order to bring us good luck, right? Like some kind of incantation or verbal rabbit's foot. That if we say the right words in the right way, and then God will bless us, and things will go our way. 
But I'm sorry, that's not how it works. And so whether it's something high profile like an inauguration or it's something more low-key like Sundays at Hopewell, we need to make sure we don't treat the Beatitudes superstitiously, but rather, as Carrie was praying, we need to come to them with a humble heart and a teachable spirit because as we've seen in this series, true blessedness from God starts not with a change of fortune, but rather with a change of heart. A change of heart that it's more about what happens in us than it is about what happens to us. So yes, be warm, but also be encouraged. And i got to say, just two weeks into this series, and I'm extremely encouraged by what God's doing here, right? It's exciting to see your enthusiasm for this series and how you not only want to know more, but you also want to live better. Live better. You want the Beatitudes of Jesus to make a genuine difference in your life. So much so that you're willing to set aside your own personal wants. You're willing to set aside, you know, the the misconceptions of others when it comes to the Beatitudes. And instead, you're willing to embrace what Jesus has to say about what it means to be truly hashtag blessed. Well, last week we looked at the first of Jesus's eight blessed our statements in the Beatitudes. It's found in Matthew chapter 5, verse 3. Jesus says, blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. So Jesus says here that God's deepest blessings are not for those who think that they are rich in spirit because of this inflated view of their own moral goodness, that blessings from God are somehow something that he owes them because they're checking off all the right religious boxes. No, the blessings of the kingdom of heaven are for those who know that they are spiritually poor, spiritually bankrupt, spiritually impoverished, And I describe being poor in spirit this way. That to be poor in spirit means when it comes to improving my standing before God, when it comes to keeping his righteous requirements as revealed to us in his word, I have nothing. I bring nothing. I can do nothing. I am spiritually bankrupt. And our poverty of spirit is this common theme that's repeated throughout the Bible where our best religious attempts to win God over are described as filthy rags and heaps of rubbish in the eyes of the Lord. And we saw this come into full view with the life story of the Apostle Paul in Philippians chapter 3. How this man of great respectability eventually realized that all his religious works, that everything he thought would guarantee him a blessed life, that all that was nothing but garbage before a holy God. Then and only then was Paul awakened to the riches of the salvation that are found in Jesus Christ and him alone. That's what happened with the Apostle Paul. And this blessed are the poor in spirit beatitude, it tells us that it works the exact same way for us as well. Where the desperation we feel over our spiritual bankruptcy drives us to the good news of Jesus Christ. That when we acknowledge our poverty of spirit, it awakens us to the riches of Christ. Only then can we see Jesus and experience his perfect righteousness as our own. You'll never go looking for what you don't think you don't need, right? And so when we run to Jesus, when we cling to his righteousness, then we can know for certain that the kingdom of heaven is truly ours. And we can be confident of that because our faith is no longer trusting in the uncertainty and the inadequacy of what we think we can do for God, but rather our faith is resting It's resting in the sufficiency of what Jesus has already done for us. And so the blessedness of the riches of Christ and his glorious gospel 
turn spiritual paupers like us into spiritual princes and princesses, sons and daughters of the King, our Heavenly Father. Blessed are the poor in spirit, for yours is the kingdom of heaven. Isn't that great? And we start with the first one because it's the foundation. It's the building block we must have in place if we're going to proceed through these remaining seven blessed our statements of the Beatitudes. Now, like I said last week, whether or not you're willing to start there, it's between you and God. I can't make you believe that, but I certainly want you to see it because once you see it, then you know all that Jesus wants to be for you. So assuming that's where you are in your faith journey, we can go ahead and take a look at the second of Jesus' eight Beatitudes. It's found in Matthew chapter 5, verse 4. And it says this, Blessed are those who mourn, for they will be comforted. Blessed are those who mourn, for they will be comforted. If last week's Beatitude was about our desperation, then this week's Beatitude is about our brokenness. Blessed are those who mourn, for they will be comforted. That in the same way that God's richest blessings will come to those of us who know that we're desperate, Jesus says here that they'll also be poured out upon those of us who are broken over our sin. Blessed are those who mourn, for they will be comforted. Now, to help us understand what Jesus is trying to get at here, I think it's best if we start by unpacking this whole idea of mourning, right? Mourning. What does it mean to mourn? Well, for starters, I think mourning is a lot like the definition of love and that it's one thing to explain it in words, but it's another thing to experience it in life. So I can give you some technical dictionary definitions about the words mourn and mourning, but it's not going to come close, right? To those of you who've actually gone through it. To those of you who know firsthand how painful the sorrow can be in your hearts when you mourn the loss of a loved one, right? It's hard. It's hard, and, and for those of you here today who still find yourselves going through bouts of mourning and hurt, the Bible promises that the Lord is close to the brokenhearted, that the Lord saves those who are crushed in spirit, Psalm 34, 18. And yet, as wonderful as that promise is, is that the kind of mourning and comfort Jesus is talking about here? Well, the short answer is No. It's not. That in the same way that last week's Beatitude talked about our spiritual poverty and not our material poverty, this week's Beatitude also dresses a kind of spiritual mourning rather than the natural mourning that we rightly go through when we lose someone close to us. So what does Jesus mean then when he talks about spiritual mourning? Well, this is where we do need to get a little technical and start by talking about some formal definitions. So follow me on this. That if I asked you what you thought mourning was in the natural world, you'd probably say something like, well, well, mourning is the painful emotions I feel when I lose someone close to me, right? Probably something like that. Pretty good. It captures the essence of what goes on when people mourn. But I want to tweak that a bit, right? I want to tweak that because mourning isn't so much about the loss of someone or something, but rather mourning is about the absence of someone or something. Not so much about loss as it is about absence. Now, I know that might sound like a nitpicky difference, but I need you to hang with me on this. Think about it. That the reason we hurt so much when we mourn is because the person we loved isn't with us anymore. That what our hearts want is not what actually is. And the mourning comes from that disparity, right? 
Now, the reason I'm focusing on absence rather than loss is, I don't know if you ever thought about this before, but you can actually mourn over something that was never yours in the first place. And you can. As a pastor, I've counseled adults through the years who have struggled in the relationship with their dad or their mom, where there's just this endless string of hurtful letdowns and disappointments, where the parent hasn't been emotionally present or supportive, and every time the counselee gets their hopes up, that things are going to be different the next time, they find themselves paying the price once again for trusting, for opening up their heart and believing that their parent is somehow going to be different and someone they can count on. So in their heart, I've told them that it's okay. It's okay to mourn. It's okay to grieve over the absence of what they wish their mom or their dad could be for them. Now, in that kind of mourning, think about it. They didn't lose anything because it was never there in the first place. Does that make sense? Like I said before, there is an absence between what your heart wants versus what actually is. Now, this isn't a message about family counseling, but let me just add one more thing before we go on. That why I do think it is healthy for adult sons, adult daughters to mourn over the absence of what they wish they had from their parents, I also nudge counselees towards empathy. We need to know that most parents did the best they could with what they had. And that a lot of times they're overcoming some major baggage of what they had experienced growing up. My point being is that we're never going to find healing and restoration and happiness if we keep on playing the blame game in life. Mourn, yes. But at some point, we got to move on from always going through life as a victim of what happens to us. Now, I know that's a little bit of a tangent, but it really does set us up now to begin to talk about spiritual mourning. So when we think about mourning in general, here's how I define it. That mourning is genuine, heartfelt sorrow over the absence of something that you deeply desire. That the mourning is the pain that comes from the difference between our longings versus our reality. So that definition works for natural mourning, right? That if a loved one's no longer with us, we feel their absence. We wish, we deeply desire they were still with us, even though that's not reality. Let me just also add, too, that the ability to mourn, that's how God created us. It is. It's the way he's wired our hearts. Mourning happens because we're created to to love deeply. We're created to feel intensely. And so to not mourn or to shut off that part of who we are, it goes against our divine design as a man, as a woman who is created in the image of God. So mourning is good. It's a gift from God. This general, genuine heartfelt sorrow over the absence of something you deeply desire. So let's now go ahead and take this idea, right, from the natural world, the one we're pretty familiar with, and bring it into the spiritual world. For Jesus says, blessed are those who mourn. He's talking about mourning spiritually, for they will be comforted. If Jesus is talking about spiritual mourning then, what is absent? What's absent in our lives that's causing us so much pain? Well, this is where we need to go back to the beginning of the Beatitudes again, right? Remember, the Beatitudes have a sequence. The order matters. And we start with that very first one we read last week. Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. The point is that when you realize in your life that you can see the poverty of your spirit, that you own up to that, your inevitable next step should be one of brokenness, of pain, of heartache, of grief, of mourning, over the absence of any kind of ability within you to please God on your own apart from Jesus. The knowing has to lead to feeling. So on the one hand, you've got this genuine desire within you to love God and to walk in his ways, but then there's also the bitter reality of falling short and messing up time and time again. 
And so when you and I fail to live and to love the way God intends, it should break us up emotionally. It really should. You know, I think of the words of the Apostle Paul, who is very honest about the difference between his longings to please God versus the reality of him failing to do so. Romans chapter 7, verse 18. Look at how he tries to explain this. It's actually kind of funny. Uh, For I have the desire, Paul's talking about himself, to do what is good, but I cannot carry out. For I do not do the good I want to do, but the evil I do not want to do, this I keep on doing. Wow. Now if I do what I do not want to do, it is no longer I who do it, but it is sin living in me that does it. So I find this law at work. Although I want to do good, evil is right there with me. So you see, you hear, you feel Paul's desire to want to please God and everything, but his reality he knows is something different because he doesn't always do it. Verse 22, for in my inner being then I delight in God's law. I, I, I want, I, this is what I, how I want to live, right? But I see another law at work in me, waging war against the law of my mind. It makes me a prisoner of the law of sin at work within me. So that's that tension, it's that struggle, it's that disparity. And, and what's his conclusion? Verse 24, what a wretched man I am. What a wretched man I am. That right there is spiritual mourning. It's us feeling sick over the absence of God-pleasing holiness and righteousness in our lives. I have the desire to do what is good, but I cannot carry it out. And so for those of us who are honest about our poverty of spirit, about how our desperation over it awakens us to the riches of Christ, then there should also come this feeling of brokenness deep within that leads us to mourn over those selfish and those stubborn and those sinful places in our lives that are displeasing to God. Oh, what a wretched man. Oh, what a wretched woman I am. This is the confession for those of us who spiritually mourn. Do you get it? This is what Jesus meant when he said, bless are those who mourn, for they will be comforted. That is the idea. The problem is some of us are unwilling to mourn. We're unwilling to mourn. We're unwilling to go there. And the reason we're unwilling to go there is twofold. How ugly it looks and how painful it feels. How ugly it looks, how painful it feels. (laughs) To confess your spiritual desperation, to be honest about your brokenness, it's awfully humbling. And like I said last week, some of us are too proud to admit it. It's ugly looking. Some of us are more concerned about our appearance than we are about the truth. So we just don't want to go there. The other, how painful it feels, you know, that gets in the way as well, right? It's painful to mourn, and so we just want to ignore that altogether. We want to avoid it. I mean, you know the basic psych term, right? Denial. And so I won't have to go through all that soul-crushing agony if I pretend it's not there. That's true of spiritual mourning. It's true of natural mourning. Some people are so scared of getting overwhelmed by their grief over the loss of a loved one, they just try not to acknowledge it. You've probably seen that in someone else before, or maybe you've experienced that yourself, that you just can't open the door to reality, so you keep it shut and live in denial, all out of self-protection. Listen, I think Jesus knows how hard it is for us to get to the place where we can mourn spiritually, for us to get past how ugly it looks, how painful it feels. He knows that, he understands that. After all, the Gospels tell us that Jesus is the most compassionate and empathetic person who ever walked this earth. 
So he gets it, right? He gets that struggle in us. But he also knows that denial is never a long-term solution for healing and restoration. And so if we go through life refusing to see and to feel our spiritual brokenness, we're going to shut ourselves out from the blessings that God wants to give to those of us who spiritually mourn. Blessed are those who mourn, for they will be comforted. Now, before I get to the solution side of the message, there's one other thing I want to bring up about spiritual mourning. See, it's one thing for us to work past our denial and embrace our brokenness, but it's another thing, though, to think about where we look to find our comfort. Where we look to find our comfort. We live in a time when there are more false promises of comfort than ever before. And so whether it's spiritual mourning, natural mourning, or some other kind of heartache and pain, there are so many counterfeit alternatives and temptations out there that want to distract us from this promise of comfort that Jesus gives us in the Beatitudes. So some people, they look to painkillers to cure the discomfort in their life. One of the major tragedies in our day and age isn't so much illegal drugs. No, it's prescription meds, it's opioid addictions. The current statistics are staggering. Now, this isn't a rant against all medicine or all doctors. It's just a snapshot of the world we live in now and how so many people try to find deep comfort that way. Maybe you are in the midst of it. You personally are someone you care for deeply. You know, it's one thing to use meds to soothe pain temporarily. It's another thing to think that they're going to give you the deep and abiding comfort you're looking for. I just say, you know, if that's your situation, get some help. Get some help before it gets any worse. And, you know, I'd say the same thing about any other kind of addiction, right? Food, alcohol, shopping, gambling, online, pornography, that whatever the habit might be, it all traces back to this beatitude. It all traces back to our search for deep and abiding comfort. But here's what you need to notice with Jesus' words. Jesus does not say, blessed are those who mourn because they'll have to find a way to comfort themselves. Now, what does he say? Blessed are those who mourn, for they will be comforted. Recipients of comfort. And so where does that deep and abiding comfort for our souls come from when we can be honest enough and daring enough to mourn spiritually just like Paul did? To come to that point of saying, yeah, I am a wretched person. It comes from God. Comes from God. I love the way Paul puts it at the very beginning of 2 Corinthians. He says this Praise be to the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. He is what? The Father of compassion, and He is the God of all comfort who comforts us in all our troubles. And Jesus can speak confidently that those of us who mourn spiritually will be comforted because He knows with all certainty, better than anyone else, that His Heavenly Father is the God of all comfort. And that he is full of compassion towards us. He is. And that this same God with a heart full of love, he is just waiting. You need to know he's just waiting to pour out his comfort in great abundance upon the desperate and the broken among us. Now, it takes faith. It takes trust. It takes patience. But if we can push past denial, we can get to that place where we can open up our hearts, as hard as that is, and resist the temptation to self-comfort, to self-medicate, then in our brokenness, we will experience the grace, the mercy, the comfort, the peace, the love from a God who is greater than our biggest fears. 
in our deepest hurts. Our God, the God you have been worshiping today, he is the father of compassion. He is the God of all comfort. Blessed are those who mourn, for they will be comforted. So what does all that mean practically? How do you put it into action? What does it look like when you mourn spiritually over your selfishness, over your stubbornness, over your sinfulness? Well, let me share another passage, then I'll wrap up with some closing thoughts. Back to the Apostle Paul, that later on in 2 Corinthians, chapter 7, verse 10, he says this. He says that godly sorrow brings repentance that leads to salvation and leaves no regret, but worldly sorrow brings death. Godly sorrow brings repentance that leads to salvation and leaves no regret, but worldly sorrow brings death. Now, we've talked about natural mourning or sorrow. We've talked about spiritual or, as Paul puts it here, godly mourning or sorrow. But he also mentions this third kind here, which is worldly sorrow. Now, we're not going to get into this in great detail, but worldly sorrow is the only one of the three that is bad. Worldly sorrow is the mourning, is the pain we feel from things like envy and jealousy and covetousness, right? What our hearts long for versus what is our reality. It's when we sinfully pine for something that God doesn't intend for us to have, at least right now, because it's not for our good, and it's only going to lead to death, death spiritually and maybe even death physically. So not all sorrow, not all mourning is the same, but there is this good and godly sorrow that Paul talks about here that is identical to the spiritual mourning Jesus brings up in the Beatitudes. It's the sorrow that he feels in his brokenness when he cries out, wretched man that I am. Godly sorrow, spiritual mourning. But I want you to notice something here. That sorrow, that mourning, it's a place we travel through, not a place we travel to, right? Godly sorrow, spiritual mourning, is a place we travel through, not a place we travel to. In other words, to experience the blessing of God's supernatural comfort, we need to go there and have the courage to go there, but we're not supposed to stay there. But there's nothing godly or spiritual about living in a state of perpetual sadness. That's not God's heart for you. It's not. Now, what does Paul say here? He says that godly heartfelt sorrow, spiritual mourning, brings what? It brings repentance. Repentance. Now, repentance is this religious-sounding word that you may have heard of before, but you might not know what it means. So what is repentance? Repentance essentially just means a change of direction. A change of direction. Repentance is when we humbly and, and honestly acknowledge our sinfulness, our selfishness, our stubbornness before the Lord. And we tell him not only that we're sorry that we've sinned, but we also tell him that we want to change and live differently. We want to make better choices. We want to have godlier thoughts. We want to do loving actions. That is the heart of repentance. So that's my uh, verbal explanation, but maybe this diagram will make more sense. So here's our live, and there is this. Within every one of us, no matter how perfect we look on the outside on a Sunday, there is this selfishness in us. There is this stubbornness in us. There is this sinfulness in us that rebels against God, that offends him. Those times when we choose my way over God's way that reflect our poverty of spirit. And when that happens, then and we come to grips with that, there are many ways we can choose and different responses. Response number one is what we talked about before, denial. You pretend it's not there. You pretend it didn't happen. When you choose denial, you're refusing to own up to your poverty of spirit, and therefore you see no need to mourn spiritually. Denial. Why feel sad if you didn't do anything bad. 
But I hope you can see that denial isn't reality, and it certainly is a great affront to the holiness of our God. So denial is not really an option. The same goes for response number two, self-comfort. It's what I talked about earlier, where you face up to the poverty of your spirit and you feel bad about it, but then you take matters of comfort into your own hand and you try to fix your sorrow and your pain on my own. And so those arrows just represent all our different attempts Habits, hobbies, pursuits of pleasures, addictions, right, that we think are going to bring us the comfort we're looking for. Good diagnosis, wrong solution. So it is with response number three, self-pity. Here, too, you're feeling sorry for what you did. You're sorry over your selfishness, your stubbornness, your sinfulness. But you stay stuck in regret. Why? Because you think you somehow deserve it, and you believe the lies that Satan tells you that you're worthless. Have you ever heard those lies before? Because I have. Not um, audibly, but emotionally. Lies like, if you love God so much, how could you do such a thing? Lies like, if you really think God is going to forgive you for that? Lies that say, how can you say you're sorry if you keep on messing up and do the same thing over and over again? That's why Satan is called the accuser. And pretty soon those lies, that self-pity, they become a prison of despair where we're trapped in hopelessness. But that's not how spiritual mourning is supposed to work. Remember what I said? It's not a place we travel to and stop and stay there forever. No, it's a place we travel through, which leads then to this fourth and final and the only correct response, which is the response of repentance. Let's go back again to 2 Corinthians in chapter 7, verse 10, godly sorrow brings repentance that leads to salvation and leaves no regrets. See, those who choose self-comfort, those who choose self-pity, they also experience sorrow and sadness. The problem is they handle it the wrong way. What does it say here? That godly sorrow should bring repentance, a repentance that leads somewhere, where? To salvation and leaves no regrets. It looks something like this, right? It's more than just feeling sad or sorry for what you've done. Now, true spiritual mourning brings about godly sorrow. It brings about a desire to change, which then leads me to Jesus and the comfort of his salvation. Right? That's why those who mourn are blessed. They travel through their mourning to the cross. So when you repent of your sin, it doesn't mean you're any less sorry. It just means that as much as you are broken over it, you also know that God's grace is greater still. Godly sorrow brings repentance, the kind of repentance that leads to salvation and leaves no regret. It leaves no regret, and not regret in the sense that you wish you hadn't sinned, not that kind of regret, but regret in the sense of haunting regret. Haunting regret, the kind of regret you just can't shake, the kind of regret that hangs over your head like a dark cloud, and follows you around in life, right? The kind of regret that can happen to us. See, but here's what you need to know, that when your repentance leads you to salvation, leads you to the forgiveness of Jesus, the power of haunting regret is broken because you know that there is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Romans 8, chapter 1. That is the power of repentance because it leads us to salvation and leaves no regret. See, that's why. That's why Jesus wants you to know, blessed are those who mourn. 
spiritually. Over your sinfulness, over your stubbornness, over your selfishness. How you've not only hurt others because of it, but also how you've greatly offended and deeply disappointed your God. Hard place to go to, but if you're willing to own up to it, that will lead you to repentance. And from there, and only there, will you find the one true comfort, both for this life and for the life to come. The comfort that Jesus alone brings through the free and ongoing gift of his salvation to all of us. That's why it's called the gospel. That's why it's called the good news. And that's why we as a church celebrate communion every month. Communion reminds us that the way we should deal with our faults and failures is not denial, it's not self-comfort, it's not self-pity. No, communion is an invitation to repentance. That's true for the longtime Christian, that's true for the brand new Christian, that's also true for the person who has yet to receive the free gift of salvation in Jesus. Wherever you might be in that mix today, I want to invite you to repent, to get honest with God, to trust him to bring your heart the forgiveness and the comfort it's longing for. One more thing, and then I'll close. Repentance. Always name specific sins. It's never generic. The invitation is to repentance, and we kind of got to know how to do it, right? Repentance always names specific sins. It's never generic. So we, we need to get as specific as we can about our sins. So it's not, sorry, God, I blew it. Sorry, God, I feel bad for not being a good person. That's what I mean by generic. No, repentance is specific. Why? Because Jesus died for the specific sins of specific people like you and me. He didn't hang on the cross in theory and in abstract. He hung on the cross for the things we've done. So repentance looks like this. Sorry, God, that I lost my temper and yelled at my kids this morning on the way to church. Sorry, God, that I lied about Fred just as a way to get back at him. Sorry, God, that I'm trying to find my affirmation by the number of likes I get on Facebook. Sorry, God, that I gave away my emotions to a coworker that should be reserved for my spouse. It's that specific. Ugly? You betcha. Don't take this personally. We got a room full of ugly people. <laughs> All right. We may look shiny pretty, all put together on the outside. But the invitation is not for the perfect. It's not for the put together. It's for the desperate. It's for the broken. Because blessed are those who mourn over that brokenness. For they, we, shall find the comfort that Jesus and Jesus alone can bring to a mourning heart. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, as we prepare for communion, as if the word of God, as if the Beatitudes of Jesus weren't confrontational enough, 
we're now going to come to the cross. We're now going to come to the bread and the cup that reminds us that Jesus died for the specific sins of specific people like all of us here. No exclusions, no exceptions. And also, no competition and no comparison. No, well, at least I'm not as bad at, no. We're exposed. We're humbled. We're desperate. And we're broken. God, I think it's okay that your spirit is stirring things up in our hearts and we feel that. We feel that heaviness. We feel that sadness. We don't want to deny it. We don't want to go around it. We don't want to medicate it. But we don't want to stay stuck in it either. And so as awful as our sin is, your grace is greater still. And so may we, through repentance, be led to the cross, to salvation, where we find complete forgiveness that leaves no regrets. And as we celebrate that, may we experience anew and afresh the freedom that comes to the sons and daughters of our Heavenly Father. This we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. As we prepare to take the bread and the cup just in response to this message and, and what Jesus has done on the cross for us, just have a few instructions as we prepare to enter into this time. And that is just that, so here at Hopevale, you do not have to be a member of the church to participate in communion. You know, the only requirement that we ask is that you are a follower of Jesus Christ the way the Bible describes it. That's right in line with everything that we've talked about this morning that we come to this time with just an attitude and a spirit of mourning and humbleness and brokenness, recognizing that we can't save ourselves, that we are in need of a Savior, and Jesus is our Savior, and he came to this earth and died on the cross for our sins in our place so that you and I might be able to receive eternal life. And so if, if that describes you this morning, that you have come to that place of faith and repentance, before Jesus, we would invite you to participate as the elements pass by. If, if that doesn't describe you this morning, just out of respect for what we're doing here, we would ask that you simply just help pass the elements along the row. And we don't say that to uh, single you out or to put you on the spot or make you feel like you can't participate. We do that just out of the seriousness of, of what we're doing here this morning. And at the same time, you know, there is no better opportunity uh, for you to potentially respond to this gospel message for the first time today. And so, again, this is not meant to exclude you. And so maybe this is an opportunity for you to look inside and to evaluate yourself and your life and maybe come to the realization that maybe you have been denying who you are before a holy God and that you are in need of a Savior. And if that's the case, you know, we would encourage you to just come before the Lord in that spiritual mourning confess your sins before the Lord and accept him as your personal savior. And parents with any uh, young kids in the room this morning, we would just ask that you use your discretion with them. You know, we just trust that you've had conversations with them. You know where their hearts are, where they stand before the Lord. And so if they have crossed that line of faith, please help them with the elements. Uh, but if not, just help pass them by 
And again, just using this opportunity to maybe have a conversation with them later about the significance of this moment and what we're, what we're remembering and celebrating here this morning. So at this time, I'd like to invite the ushers to come forward as we prepare to take the bread. And I just want to say that uh, after I pray, as the, the, the bread is being passed out, you know, you're going to have a moment uh, just of silence and quiet as you, uh, as you sit there and just an opportunity for all of us to reflect. And I think that really is the opportunity that we have to specifically identify and confess our sins before the Lord. And so I would just encourage all of us to take that moment to do that. And so let's, uh, let's go to the Lord in prayer. Lord, we are <clears throat> we're incredibly grateful for who you are and all that you have done for us. And we come to this moment and uh, just really need to take this opportunity to look inward at ourselves. And God, recognize that who we are, sinful, broken people, in light of a holy God, it's a very difficult and uncomfortable place to be. And we just want to, to stand in the reality of that for a moment, that apart from you, the wages of our sin is death. And so God, we just confess to you that we are in desperate need of you and who you are and what you have done for us. And so, Lord, as we prepare to take the bread, just recognizing that that is symbolic of your body that was broken, crucified, and killed on the cross for our sins on our behalf so that that wouldn't have to be us on the cross. God, we are incredibly grateful for that and for what you have done for us. And so, God, as we come with this heart and attitude of mourning, just thank you that you are there to comfort us. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.
God, we come to you and really the reality of this moment. On the one hand, we come in mourning and brokenness. And on the other hand, your word says that we can approach the throne of grace with confidence. We are incredibly grateful for who you are in that. Because Lord, as we humble ourselves before you, if you wanted to, you could destroy us right where we are. But instead, God, you open your arms wide to us and say that we can approach you confidently because of your grace, because of your mercy, because of your love for us and all that you have done, all that you have accomplished on our behalf. So Lord, as we prepare to take the cup, the symbolic of your shed blood on the cross for our sins, that, that covers over our sins so that we can have forgiveness and stand in right relationship before you. God, that gives us incredible reason to celebrate and to just respond with all of our lives in allegiance to you. God, we thank you for this gift.
song just as a reminder and an expression that because of what God has done for us we are his and so in the same way after supper Jesus took the cup saying this cup is the new covenant in my blood do this whenever you drink it in remembrance of me Lord it has been a powerful time this morning to just remember you who you are, what you have done for us, and most importantly, just who we are in light of you. And so, God, we just, again, humbly lay ourselves before you. We entrust our lives with you, just forever grateful for what you have done for us on our behalf. And so, God, we just desire to live our lives out each and every day in your service to bring you the praise and the glory and the honor that you deserve. We love you, Jesus, and we pray all this in your name. Amen. Because of what Jesus did on the cross, we no longer have to be slaves to our envy and our strife. We no longer have to be slaves to sin. We no longer have to be slaves to death. We no longer have to be slaves to fear. Would you please stand to your feet? Sing this out as a declaration with us this morning. You unravel me with a melody. Surround me with a song of deliverance from my enemies till all my fears are gone, and I'm no longer a slave.
Amen. We are children of God. What an incredible promise and reality that is for us. So thank you so much again for being here. We're going to continue our series uh, next week with Blessed Are the Meek. So we hope to see you then. Have a great week.